Ah, man. You know what's going on when you hear that different music, don't you? Well, hey, Commute listeners. Dave here. No new episode this week, but but I think you'll really enjoy what we've got cooking for you. We've spliced together three 4th of July-themed segments from past episodes, including one of our best-reviewed segments ever about the origin of those crazy firework tents that you see everywhere right now. Aside from that, we'll also talk about Joey Chestnut, the greatest competitive eater of all time, who's going for his record 15th Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest victory later today. We'll also talk about a movie based around the 4th of July, Jaws, and the whereabouts of its most famous actor, the mechanical shark, Bruce. So stay tuned, happy 4th of July, and we'll see you next week with an all-new episode. But without further ado, let's get it. So, Dave, we're a little bit past the 4th of July, and uh, this is when we, as a nation, shoot off a lot of fireworks. Are you a fireworks guy? The older I get, the less I like fireworks, which is, it makes me feel very much like the get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. But what shocks me, and I know that you're going to get into this, what shocks me is how many firework tents exist in every single town in America. Yeah, I realized that I had crossed a threshold this year. Uh, You know, I used to shoot off fireworks with friends in high school and stuff like that. And then this year there were people in my neighborhood shooting them off at like 10 o'clock at night on July 6th. And my kids were not happy about it and I was not happy about it. And, you know, I realized that there had been a sea change in the way that I saw fireworks and that now I sort of see them as a nuisance, whereas before I thought they were kind of cool. You mentioned tents and uh, we started talking about it and I just got really interested in finding out like, where do these come from? Dave, Americans actually spend around $1.5 billion a year on fireworks and most of that is clustered around the 4th of July. So the business is definitely profitable but it's also sort of a gold rush. You know, you make the vast majority of your profits in a very small window. And while the profits are high, you also have to deal with the local and state laws that deal with firework distribution, which can vary not just from state to state, but also from city to city. You know, many cities limit the number of stands that can be present at one time and limit the dates in which the products can even be sold, which is why you often see pop-up tents and stands as opposed to physical stores. And not all stands are independent operations, though. Some larger companies like Phantom Fireworks, which is uh, the largest distributor of fireworks in the United States, they have standalone stores, but they also set up pop-up shops throughout the country to meet demand during the 4th of July. And entrepreneurs who choose to participate can contact a distributor to sell their products, purchase a package and signage, sell what they can, and then pocket the profit. Typically, fireworks selling windows only run for one one week. So a downpour or a scorching hot day during that holy week, it could cost your stand 15 to 20% of your yearly profits in just one day of bad luck. Then you probably have to pay a fee to rent the location alongside the road to catch traffic. You have to avoid getting shut down for violating one of the many laws regarding selling fireworks. And when all is said and done, you have a risky yet 
potentially very profitable adventure. Uh, many people who run fireworks stands report marking their products up thousands of percent of what they paid for the inventory. And ultimately, though, Dave, it boils down to the window. Most people who run a fireworks stand don't do it to make their yearly income. Most people do it to rake in a few thousand dollars in the summer when the demand is high. Well, you know, Jay, you and I can say whatever we want about the fireworks industry, but we've never worked in it. Thankfully, my longest friend, my best friend Dave, actually sold fireworks at one of these tents for a summer, and I caught up with him a couple days ago in preparation for this segment to get an expert's opinion. I wanted an expert to weigh in on what it's actually like to work for one of these companies. So Dave, tell us, what is it actually like running a fireworks tent? They essentially drop off a tractor-trailer a uh, shipping container full of fireworks. They they drop it off and they set up a tent and that's it. And you have two weeks to figure everything out and you have a portage on that they give you and they clean it out once uh, during a two weeks duration. <laughs> and it's 90 degrees and you sit in the sun and people come in and ask you what every single firework does and you have no information. And so you make answers up as the two weeks go on, and you just and you just hope to God that people want to buy fireworks. So I'm assuming you would uh, definitely do this again. No, I would never do this again. The thing about the Portageon is is 100 percent true. They clean it out <laughs> once during your two week period, and so you keep getting gradually more disgusted with the situation because you're having to use the same toilet over and over, and so you know it's your own filth that you're like surrounded by. So we were so excited to have our toilet emptied out halfway through, and we were like, this is going to be so much better inside. And before we had a chance to use our toilet, a bum had stopped by and asked if he could use it. And to just keep it simple, he completely destroyed the outhouse and didn't use toilet paper. And so my first trip to the bathroom, after it had been cleaned, the place is already a total wreck. Jay, my boy, I believe we have uh, mentioned this on the podcast before, but I don't really like to swim in the ocean. Now, while the reason I don't like to swim in the ocean has more to do with jellyfish than with sharks, I nonetheless firmly believe human beings are not really supposed to be playing in the ocean. Jay, it's nature's buffet. Yeah, I mean, you take it a little bit too far, though. I mean, you're talking like, uh, you know, past the ankles, you're you're out. But this was the beauty of innovation in the human race. This is why we made swimming pools for this exact reason. So you don't have to swim where something could kill you. Well, Jay, regardless of how you feel about splashing around in the ocean, one thing's for sure. Sharks are terrifying and fascinating creatures. And one of my all-time favorite movies revolves around perhaps the scariest, most intimidating type of shark, the Great White. Jay, I am, of course, talking about the 1975 classic Jaws. Are you a Jaws fan? Yeah, I loved Jaws uh, whenever I saw it for the first time. Um, It was probably the first time that I can remember that a movie really made, like, you get that feeling of tension throughout a movie that lasts for a long time or, like, through a scene. You remind me of a couple characters from Jaws. You either remind me of Quint, who is the uh, crazy drunk who has the boat that they go out in, or you remind me of, I think his name was Billy, the little boy that disappears because he was eaten. 
Yeah, so it only took you about three minutes this week to get in a shot at me. Uh, That's maybe a little bit sooner than usual. (laughs) Well, Jay, while the movie is great, we can both agree on that. And the legendary story behind the film's star is just as good as the movie. A mechanical shark, or to be more accurate, a set of four mechanical sharks, affectionately named Bruce. Quickly, for the hopefully very small number of listeners that have not seen Jaws. Jaws is the story of a small resort town that gets terrorized by a huge great white shark during the 4th of July weekends. We just passed the 4th of July, actually. Oh, coincidence? I think not. Three men, led by police chief Brody, eventually set out on a small rickety fishing boat to hunt down the beast and save tourist season. Jay Jaws was nominated for Best Picture in 1970 and has been named a top 10 film by many publications, a top 10 film of all time by many publications, and still causes folks pause today in 2021 when they enter the ocean. And you never even see the shark for the first half of the movie. The movie, by many industry standards, should have failed. Steven Spielberg, man, back-to-back weeks talking about uh, old Steve, was not yet even 30 yet and largely untested. The film, based on a book, started filming, get this, without a script, a full cast, or the shark. Three original sharks arrived on the filming set in July of 1973. Jay, it was roughly two months after shooting had already begun. And despite the heavy hitters that were hired to build the mechanical sharks, all three of the original ones were constantly plagued by mechanical failures. But Jay, it's strangely because of this that the film was so scary and ultimately successful. Spielberg had to get creative. Whether it was using a fin or a moving barrel or just relying on the legendary Jaws theme song to build suspense, he had no choice because he didn't have a shark to show. The final result was a film that took 100 days over schedule to shoot, cost roughly $5 million more than the original budget, and became an instant classic. All three broken-down Bruce Sharks were destroyed, and a fourth Bruce was built to display at Universal Studios to promote the film in 1975. It stayed at Universal Films until 1990. And Jay, here's where the story takes an even more fascinating turn in The Legend of Bruce Grows. In 1990, the final Bruce, the fourth and only existing one, was trashed and sent to the U-Pick Parts Junkyard in Sand Valley, California. Junkyard owner Sam Adlin, though, knew he was onto something special. This was not trash. This was Bruce. Bruce was different. The shark hung in basic anonymity until 2010. Okay, so from 1990 until 2010, this junkyard, when an NPR reporter discovered it. From 2010 to 2016, the junkyard became a tourist destination. And then, when Adlin passed away in 16, the shark was donated to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and refurbished. And Jay, that's where our friend Bruce resides today. Do we know if there's like an alternate script out there? Like, has Spielberg ever said, like, hey, I I wanted to put the shark here way earlier, but we didn't have it, so I had to rearrange everything? Yeah, Spielberg had to make edits on the fly. Because there were a bunch of places in the first half of the script where the shark was supposed to be shown. 
And you know, I, I, it's funny. I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and nobody realizes that you don't see the shark until the second half of the movie. But then, as soon as you tell people that, they go, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that actually does make it better." The fact that you don't really know what it looks like, you don't know how big it is, you don't know how fast it is, you don't know anything about it. I think that's kind of the center of our brain that's getting played with when we watch Jaws, and that's why it sets it apart from other horror movies. So, Dave, under the pressure of competition with a lot of people watching you, how many hot dogs, this is bun included, do you think that you could put down in 10 minutes? Well, I don't really like hot dogs, so I'm going to say one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everybody else would be slamming them. You'd be like, you guys got any ketchup? You'd You'd just be trying to enjoy your one hot dog. Well, Dave, at the 2001 Nathan's famous 4th of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest, the winner was a familiar face, a man named Joey Chestnut, who consumed 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes, breaking his own world record from last year by one hot dog. And yes, Dave, like we said, this does include the bun as well. In fact, Dave, Chestnut's run can only be described in terms of total and complete domination. His 2021 title was his sixth in a row and the 14th of his career. Since 2007, when he set the world record of 66 hot dogs, he has steadily broken his own record one to two hot dogs at a time to creep up to the current 76. And the domination, it's almost on levels of Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth all-time great status. In fact, last year, Chestnut consumed three times as many hot dogs as the second-place competitor, who topped out at only 26. In 2020, Forbes ran an article investigating just how many hot dogs could a human body consume during 10 minutes, as in, what is our peak ceiling? And the number reached by the writer Bruce Lee is 83, which Joey Chestnut has steadily been creeping towards every year. So how has Joey Chestnut maintained this level of absolute dominance for so long? Is there something lacking in us normal people that isn't lacking in him? What does it take to be a competitive eater? Well, for one, you have to master the technique. Competitive eaters train for competitions and sharpen their skills over time. Competitive eaters also wet the entirety of the hot dog, bun included, by dipping it in water, for example, so that they slide down their throats easier. Competitors also move around a lot during a competition. It can almost look like they're dancing in a way. But this is in an effort to move the contents of their stomach through their digestive system faster to make room for more. You won't find a successful competitive eater who has a gag reflex either for obvious reasons. As in all the competitive sports, though, practice makes perfect. In a publication in the American Journal of Roten Genealogy, researchers examined the stomachs of competitive eaters and showed that their stomachs essentially can stretch much more than a control subject's stomach. And while this could be attributed to the fact that some people may just have more stretchy stomachs than others, realistically, there's an aspect of training involved here. The more you stretch out the stomach, the more elastic it becomes, and part of the intense training to become a competitive eater involves binging food and liquid to expand stomach elasticity. And Dave, while you'd expect that professional eaters would be overweight, the opposite is actually true. In fact, competitive eaters weight train and do cardio as part of their overall training to increase their metabolism. In fact, many of the top competitive eaters in the world are actually in very good shape, ironically enough. 
Despite this, the University of Michigan released a study last year that eating one hot dog can shave 36 minutes off of one's healthy life. Immediately after the study was released, social media sites were very concerned for Joey Chestnut, who has eaten (laughs) an estimated 19,200 hot dogs over his last 16 years competitively. Doing the math, Joey Chestnut has lost a year and 115 days, according to this study. But to me, this is just a small price to pay for eternal glory. But Dave, in addition to this, Joey Chestnut holds the world records for eating Twinkies, pastrami sandwiches, ramen noodle cups, gumbo, mutton sandwiches, tamales, boysenberry pie, shrimp cocktail, euros, and many more other food items. So I think we need some more math done here ultimately. Now in response to concern for his life, Chestnut simply responded on Twitter, quote, interesting, I might need to eat more nuts to get time back. Now, Dave, you've told me before that you were actually more of a fan of Joey Chestnut's rival. Yes, yes. Kobayashi, the godfather of competitive eating to his fans like me. Kobayashi, a six-time champion of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. He dominated it until Joey Chestnut showed up on the scene. Now, Joey Chestnut's kind of a stocky guy. Kobayashi, super skinny. He's five foot eight, just kind of a small person. To me, it's more impressive that Kobayashi could put down the hot dogs the way he could. Joey Chestnut comes along and it's just kind of whatever. <laughs> Joey Chestnut's just kind of in a, in a world all his own. I mean, you can't even compare him to Joey, anybody. You talked about all of the other eating records that Joey Chestnut has. You actually left out my favorite one. So Joey Chestnut holds the record for most hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes <laughs> at 141. 141 hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes. He also ate 39 and a half bowls of red beans and rice in eight minutes. <laughs> And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trop. We'll see you next week.